I'll go ahead and keep your Bibles open at Romans chapter 8. You'll find the passage we're looking at in the worship folder in the Bible in front of you. Uh, we've just sung, Speak, O Lord, and uh, it's always a dangerous thing to be the first voice you hear after you've just sung, Speak, O Lord. You always wondered what kind of accent that God had. Now you know, but uh, not truly. We need to look at the Bible. And so we're turning to the Bible, Romans chapter 8, and uh, verses 23 to 25 is the passage we're looking at. And we sung that because uh, when we're studying the book of Romans, it's not just an exercise in intellectual fascination. We believe that God does indeed speak through His Word, through the Bible. That's the point of uh, our time together. We believe God is a speaking God, and He speaks through the Bible, and so we now we come with that attitude that we just expressed together so well. In other words, Romans has a message. Uh, one of the great contemporary scholars, uh, a message from God. It's not just intellectual. Romans has a message from God. One of the great contemporary scholars of Romans um, simply summarizes its message in a single word, gospel. And I think that's right, for the letter begins with the gospel, it ends with the gospel, that's the frame of the letter. Um, the uh, main thesis statement of the letter, Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel. And well, we at College Church are not ashamed of the gospel either, and we're looking at Paul's letter to the Romans to give us renewed confidence in that gospel in our own day right now. And how do we need that renewed confidence you only have to read um, blogs or news items in the press to discover that the end of biblical Christianity in the West is being announced everywhere. Uh, sometimes I think the religious journalists are the worst. They feel they have to compete with being depressing by telling everyone how bad things are going. I always find that surprising because I have to say, in my experience, Bible teaching churches are absolutely thriving across the Western world. Um, there's no doubt some churches are declining, but by and large, they are churches that are not teaching the Bible and would not sing, Speak up, O Lord, right before reading Scripture or studying the Bible. Churches that are teaching the Bible are filled with young people, truth seekers, people coming to faith of every generation, and we see that at Cottage Church in a regular stream all the time, not because there's anything special about us, but there is something special about this gospel and this book. And in particular, in our passage today, Paul is talking about hope. That is, why the future is bright for real biblical Christianity. Now, when I say that, real biblical Christianity, we immediately have to define our terms. I don't mean everything that calls itself Christian. Now, that's a difficult thing to say because immediately you're criticizing, but there are many fake forms of Christianity, and pastorally, I immediately need to define this, and uh, many fake forms of Christianity there are indeed around. Perhaps that sounds harsh. Let me give you one little illustration of that. The great 20th century theologian, a man called Torrance, was a pastor to soldiers during World War II. And one man lay dying in his arms uh, during uh, one particular brutal uh, fight. And the man, as he lay dying, asked the, uh, Torrance, who was going to become this great theologian, then a young pastor, he asked him, as he was dying, this question, is God like Jesus? 
Really interesting question. He loved Jesus, but is God like Jesus? Torrance, the man who's been called perhaps the greatest theologian of the 20th century, Torrance was able to tell him that indeed God was like Jesus, and he led him to faith in Jesus. Anyone who says God is not like Jesus is not going to have a thriving Christian, Jesus-centered ministry, are they? Whatever else they may have, for as Jesus himself said, I and the Father are one, John chapter 10, 10 verse 30. So by real biblical Christianity, we mean the Christianity that focuses on the Bible and in particular on the gospel. And in this chapter 8, Paul is glorying in the confidence, the power of God that comes from God's Word and from the gospel. And so this chapter 8 is all about that confidence. It's all about assurance. It begins with, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with, nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through the love of God of Jesus. And now in the section we're looking at uh, here uh, this morning, in the middle of this uh, great letter uh, of, uh, uh, and this great chapter, chapter 8, right in the middle, there's a section that really runs from verse 19 uh, through to verse 25. That's one way of defining it, maybe verse 18 to 25, but anyway, that's the section. And throughout this part of the chapter, he's dealing with suffering. So the question that's on his mind as he's answering the inevitable questions that have come to him as he's writing these things and speaking these things about confidence in the gospel is, how then, why then, what about this then, why do we suffer? How is it that if we're raised with Christ, as Paul has just taught, are we not yet raised physically? How come why then is it that followers of Jesus suffer? How do we explain all that? And Paul is saying over and over again, it's because we are waiting, what is translated eagerly waiting. Now, talking about translations, the text in our translation ends with the word patience, um, which may suggest perhaps that the burden of the text is patience or long-suffering, and of course patience is important. But here, I think the authorized version has it better when it says, the concluding sentence, verse 25, we with patience wait for it. Wait is the final word there, wait. Wait is the emphasis of the text. It's used three times in this section. Verse 19, the creation waits. Verse 23, we wait. And then right at the end, the last word of the sentence, verse 25, we wait. In other words, Paul is saying that we who follow Jesus are living what theologians call the now and not yet. Christ has come, but He is still to come back again. We live, in other words, with hope, that much-emphasized word here, hope, hope, hope. We live with confidence in the now, knowing that Christ will return. And so Paul said, even the natural world, even creation is in a sense groaning like in childbirth for it's waiting for that day when Jesus returns. And now he says, we also, we who follow Jesus, we also groan, we also have hope. And so that's going to be the summary of the message today, groaning, hoping, groaning, hoping.
And actually they go together, as we shall see, for both are equally important. Now, I, I, I don't quite know why it is that we Christians who live in Wheaton sometimes seem to find it difficult to admit that things are not perfect. But Paul says we groan, even in Wheaton. And yet we also hope, and they are connected. There's a psychological element here as well as a spiritual. If you are unwilling to be honest about the groaning, it is probable that uh, you will find it harder to experience the thrill of the hoping. You dull one side of your emotional life, the groaning, you'll probably dull the other side. They go together. You've got to be real in order to be hopeful. So, groaning, hoping. Let's look first at the groaning. Look at verse 23. The Bible says, uh, Billy Graham, when he preached, would often just say, the Bible says, for there is authority in Scripture. The Bible says, verse 23, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, what does that mean? Well, all the commentators point out that Paul is emphasizing uh, we ourselves. He is being emphatic. He is emphasizing we ourselves, in ourselves, of ourselves. This is something that takes place within in our hearts internally. It's not, this groaning is not something we say. This is not grumbling or complaining. This is what philosophers call existential angst. See, complaining is voicing discontent with a present circumstance. But this kind of groaning is not that. It is longing. It's a longing for the fulfillment of what you already joyfully now have. So we can say that the non-Christian is satisfied spiritually. They don't think they need God. They don't think they need anything spiritual. They're satisfied spiritually, but they're dissatisfied materialistically. They want a new car. They want a new this, that, or other material toy. But the Christian is satisfied materially. They're content. But they are, in this sense, dissatisfied spiritually. They're groaning because they want to see Jesus. They love Him and they want to see Him. And so there is emphasized by Paul within us, in us, as believers, as followers of Jesus, a deep inner sense of, well, what he calls groaning. Now, we saw that word groaning last time we looked at it. was used by Jesus when he sighed as he was healing a man who was deaf. It's also the word used in the Bible when God's people cried out to God to be rescued from Egypt. Uh, Luke describes that as their groaning in Acts uh, chapter 7, you say, well, why is there this groaning? Why is there this inner sense, even for Christians, that things are not right? Well, Paul says it's something to do with this first fruits of the Spirit. You see, the first fruits was a sacrifice associated with a feast that we usually call nowadays Pentecost, giving to God the first yield of the harvest. And so it means an offering to God that indicates that the full harvest is yet to come. And the first fruits of the Spirit means the first fruits which is the Spirit. So at Pentecost, 
God poured out his Holy Spirit on all who trust in Jesus. And in that sense, all Christians are Pentecostals. For we have the first fruits of the Spirit. But it is only the first fruits. For we, as Paul says, are waiting eagerly for adoption as sons. Now, you've noticed if you look at this cha- uh, chapter here and this section, this chapter that Paul has uh, recently just recently said that we're already being adopted in God's family. Well, that is true too. We are now sons and daughters of the living God if we are true followers of Jesus, but it is also true that the adoption is still to come. And this sense that while we've been spiritually adopted, we have a relationship with God that is secure and certain and definite and confident. While that is true, we have not yet had what Paul calls the redemption of our bodies. See, what, what this means is, my friends, there is a particular kind of groaning that is only true of the real Christian. The real Christian has the first fruits of the Spirit, but the very fact that they have the first fruits means that they know there's a fuller harvest still to come. And that fuller harvest is the redemption of their bodies when they rise again physically in a bodily resurrection, and when Jesus returns, the new heaven, the new earth. And so we who follow Jesus groan, looking forward to that. We live with this already and not yet tension. It's, it's just a very little bit like if you go to a nice restaurant and you have a really excellent appetizer, an hors d'oeuvres, a starter, and you like that, and it was good. But what that first course means, of course, is that the main meal is still to come. And so while for a very young Christian, the first experience of knowing Jesus is just so amazing, it's so thrilling, you can get caught up in it, but soon enough you realize It's just the starter, it's just the appetizer, the main course. It's still to come, the redemption of the bodies. And in between times, Paul says, sometimes your stomach starts to grumble. You're groaning. You're eagerly waiting the main course, the redemption of the bodies. Now, I said at the beginning, I'm not sure why in Wheaton we find it sometimes hard to be real about this groaning, but I think actually if we listen to what God says, speak, O Lord, what He says in the Bible, it's not that hard to discern why. After all, how often is this message being taught today? I would say almost never. How often when someone becomes a Christian is the first lesson of discipleship where you are going? But that should be the first lesson. A Christian is on a journey. A Christian has a goal. A Christian is going somewhere. And so the future is bright for Christianity, for its goal is the redemption of the body. This is its teleology, if you want a fancy word for it, but really it's very simple. The child who goes on vacation to Florida and is taking a very long car ride to get there. At some point or other will utter the immortal words, are we nearly there yet? But if the goal were to be in the car, then they would have already arrived and there's nothing to groan about. Well, we Christians, like all of creation, 
constantly asking, are we nearly there yet? Now, how different this is from vast amounts of contemporary popular Christianity. The prosperity gospel does not teach this, or at least it doesn't emphasize it. For them, we have arrived. This is your best life now. But that is quite unbiblical. Your best life is then. This is just the first course. You know, this is a text that no prosperity gospel preacher could preach, which I suppose is why so often preachers who go wrong start by not preaching the Bible. You know, even preachers have their hobby horses. And preaching the Bible constantly makes you preach what God wants to say, not what you want to say. We groan is unlikely to be the mission statement of a popular Christian movement. But I wonder whether it should be. How else can we be real? Young people today are longing for the churches to be real. They, they, they long for us to say, sometimes this life is just not that great. Maybe it uh, all began with Norman Vincent Peale. Some of the older folk here will remember him. I know one scholar who I've heard used to joke on a number of occasions that Paul, he finds appealing, but Peale, he finds a Pulling. Well, quite right. There is no groaning. It's not real. It's fake. This is not a minor matter. This is absolutely essential. Parents, we have to be real with our children. You know, Rochelle and I will never discuss church politics in front of our children. They are too young to have to deal with whatever this committee thinks about whatever that committee over there thinks. I, I think sometimes I am too young to have to deal with it as well. But, <laughs> but we are real about the faith. It is not always easy. In fact, for the Christian, that is especially so. We are not at home here. You taste Jesus, and the latest iPhone is just less exciting. We're not at home here. We feel it. It's such a relief to have this biblical way of looking at life. For then you can be honest about your struggles. You know, sometimes I'll be talking with someone and they look very kind of plastic on their face, kind of rigid. And they're telling me, you know, everything is fine. And I'll say, well, I think actually you're pretty upset about that, aren't you? And they have every right to be upset about it. It was evil. It was wrong. You know, being a Christian is not pretending that life is better than it is or that we are better than we are. You know, your children don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect. The reality is you are groaning. If you are a Christian, you are groaning. In fact... If you're not, you're probably not a Christian. If you are quite happy and comfortable here and 
feel like you've already arrived and what could be better than a skinny latte at Starbucks after a spinning class followed by a night downtown watching the Blackhawks? You've probably never really had the first course. Because the first course, the first fruits of the Holy Spirit tells you there's something even better coming. The main meal, the hope. And so, my friends, this hoping is connected to this groaning theologically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. They go together. And so, Paul now, in verses 24 and 25, describes this hoping like this. The Bible says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So where he said, I think it could be better with patience we wait. Now, I was sharing with some of our staff this week that actually I think this is the harder part of the passage for us to get today, the hoping. It's relatively easy to get the groaning, but to remove the kind of thrill that Paul has as he writes this, this hope, to have that, that's a harder thing. It requires actually believing it. That is, in our minds, being persuaded that it is true. It's not something we just talk about in church, but it's true on the highway. It's true when you're flying in a plane. It's true when you're in a boat and the storm is and the waves are raging. It's just true. It requires that. And then it requires actually in a disciplined way, actually putting it into practice personally and making it part of your own experience. Uh, Now, why is it hard? Well, again, this is one of those things that we've heard almost nothing about from our pulpits for I don't know how long, the last 50 years or so. You look at it across the country, I think that's true. And no wonder we think the future's not bright for Christianity. We've not been preaching hope. Why haven't we been doing that? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because we're scared to talk about it because we'll be told that's all just pie in the sky when you'll die. It's just, you know, it's out there. Who cares for now? Let's live for now. That's just pie in the sky when you die. People don't want to hear about that. But as I've joked on a number of different occasions, it's not really just pie in the sky when you die. It is steak on your plate while you wait. You have the Holy Spirit, the the first fruits. And that means that the harvest, the redemption of your bodies is coming. It's from one great experience to another. And you're groaning, longing for the, for the main meal. And so the objective hope, the redemption of our bodies that is still to come, gives us subjective experiential hope right now. Again, the lack of this preaching in the Western world is why... Our culture is so adrift. It has no hope. It has no goal. There's no end point. Where is it going? There's no dream. It it really does come down to that. You know, what what is our dream? Is it the American dream 
The idea that is, that has been interpreted by many more recently of just getting a nice new car and a bigger, bigger, you know, uh, muck mansion kind of house and doing well materialistically. Is that the dream? Or is the dream the relativistic dream, the, the dream of postmodern relativism where we all just kind of live in a rainbow of different colors, getting along together? That'd be wonderful. We do want to all just get along together, but, but, but why? Where's that going? What's the end point of all this? And, and of course, for most people, there is no end point. And you, look, this is deeply practical. If you survey medical literature in, in American and Western countries the last 50 years, depression is, is just through the roof. This is one of the reasons why. This is why so many people have midlife crises. You know, what, what is a midlife crisis about? It's about there's less sand in the clock than there is sand that has run out. Time is running out. There's no hope. There's no place where we're going. There's no eternity. This is why we're so materialistic, consumeristic. It's because people are trying to live to get what they can while they can. If there is no hope, well, then, of course, it makes absolute rational sense to get all the toys you can because he who dies in the most toys wins. What else is there? I mean, you're still going to die. There is no hope, but, you know, why think about it? Make the most of it while you can. This is why today, actually, I mean, we talked about sex last week, and, you know, we sort of primed that to say this is going to be a sensitive topic, and in some ways it is, but actually the great taboo, the topic you cannot talk about in our culture today is not sex. I mean, our culture talks about that all the time. The thing our culture, no one, our culture will not talk about today is not sex, it is death. That's the last great taboo for Western culture. You can always tell where a culture is feeling a pressure point when its worldview is falling apart by the things it will not talk about. Death. Everyone just pretends there's no need for hope. You've heard the ultimate statistic. One in one people die. 100%. But, you know, you could read career manuals, and they would never mention that, as if it's not relevant for how you're going to live now. Of course it is. But we, we can't face up to it because we have no hope. Now, my friends, it was not always this way in Western culture, and it was not always this way in the church. If you read the Puritans, they had a whole literature on how to have a good death. You can read their letters to each other, and one pastor would write to another, and he'd say, you know, he had good prospects of revival in his town, and the reason he would give would be that he had had several good deaths recently. And, of course, what the Puritans meant was people dying full of hope. We learn these things from our forebears. The way it is now is not the way it has to be. That's why church history is so important. People teaching it who believe it's not just 
a past lesson, but something that can help us reorientate ourselves to what the Bible is presently saying about hope. This is not just for the old, you know. Okay, I'll think about that when I get to 85 or 95 or 105. What Paul is talking about is living with the end in focus, in mind. And so he says, for in this hope we were saved. Now, again, I ask you, how often have you heard that taught? I remember listening to the last time Billy Graham preached in New York City. I wanted to go down and hear him uh, live. It was a historic time. I was living quite close to New York City uh, in those days. I couldn't make it. I think I was probably preaching myself or something like that. And yet I caught the end of his sermon on radio, on the radio. Um, or maybe it was streaming internet, but I think it was perhaps before that. I don't know. And as he was preaching, he was coming to his peroration, you know, the end of the sermon when everyone gets really excited. And he was preaching about heaven. And through the radio, I could tell, it seemed to me he believed it. (laughs) How my heart soared. It's true. I'm going somewhere. It's, it's It's not just a meaningless game. There's an end. There's a purpose. Well, now I can live my life for Jesus. For sure. I'm not losing anything. You see, without this preaching, this is why, you know, people say, why are young people going off to fight for ISIS? I'll tell you why. They have no hope. You know, if any culture should have learned this, it should have been the Western culture. This is from Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl uh, was a survivor of the Auschwitz concentration uh, camp. And uh, he wrote a book called The Doctor and the Soul. And this is from that book. He wrote this. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing but... By the way, that's a wonderful phrase, reductionism, all the way through materialistic philosophy, nothing but. Man is nothing but the product of hereditary and environment. So what does that mean? Well, he immediately tells us. Or, as the Nazis like to say, of blood and soil, quote, unquote. Him quoting from Nazis, he's heard. Well, nothing but blood and soil. And he carries on. I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Badansk were ultimately prepared not in some ministry or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. There's no hope. We're not going anywhere. We're just blood and soil. Grab what you can while you can. Build an empire. Do whatever it takes. Now, having set up how important it is that we have hope, of course the trouble with hope is by its nature you cannot see it. 
But Paul here does some really clever reasoning. I'm going to try and tease it out for us because I think it is so helpful. Paul was a genius, and this reasoning here by the inspiration of God is certainly at the genius level, and I'm going to try and tease it out as far as I've understood it. I've really wrestled with it. I find it helpful, and I want to share it with you. What Paul is doing is he's taking that problem that hope by its nature is something you cannot see, and he's making it an advantage. So he says... Now, hope that is seen is not hope. In other words, you know, someone comes back and says, well, um, how can I see this? I can't see this hope. It might be nice to have that dream, but I can't see it. And so Paul says, basically, his argument is, if you could see it, it wouldn't be hope, would it? For instance... Perhaps uh, you are hoping for a particular gift for your birthday. You want a uh, new set of Jonathan Edwards sermons, something really exciting like that. And you are hoping for it. But you don't have it yet. You cannot see it. Why not? Because it's hope. That's what hope is. By its definition, it's something you don't have now, otherwise it wouldn't be hope. That's a very brilliant argument, but that's only stage one. Because, of course, the comeback to that uh, argument about hope is, is the following. Okay, that's all very well, but how do I know that this particular dream or hope is true? You could say that about any hope, any dream, and of course that is true. And Paul has a comeback to that. Now, there's, there is a grounding to this. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you'll see that Paul there gives all the eyewitness accounts for Jesus' resurrection. That's how we can know about the resurrection from the, from the dead, because Jesus was risen from the dead, the more than 500 eyewitnesses. The the trouble with that argument, which is deeply biblical and very important today, though, is uh, there's a man called Professor Sir Norman Anderson, a very brilliant godly man, world expert in Islamic law. He wrote a little booklet called Evidences for the Resurrection. And when I was first doing evangelism, we would just pass it out everywhere. And it is a brilliant book. But nowadays, when when you take that approach, you just give evidences for the resurrection, people's eyes tend to glaze over. And Paul here is actually doing something in this place a little different. What he's saying is, don't you want to have hope? Don't you actually want to believe that your life is going somewhere? In fact, don't you actually have some kind of dream that you're operating within? What is that? The dream of a successful business or a happy family? Don't you sense that you are made for something more than that? That you're not just blood and soil? Now, I have to say this carefully, but um, I think you'll understand what I mean in a moment. Uh, This is why I think funerals are so marvelous. You know, I would much rather, as a preacher, preach a funeral than a wedding, seriously. 
You know, weddings are great, and you know, I've certainly done my share of those over the years, but when you're preaching at a wedding, everyone is living in a kind of bubble. You know, it's the, I, you know they will live happily ever after and never have any problems, sort of fog. And you know that that's not true. You know they won't. You know full well that suffering will come. They'll have their arguments. They'll get old and they'll die. But that doesn't make for much of a wedding sermon. (laughs) But a funeral. There's reality for you. You can get away with saying that. There's a story of uh, the churches in the former Soviet Union who were restricted how often they could meet publicly by the atheistic regime at the time. But they could meet publicly for funerals. And so when one of their members died, they turned it really into an evangelistic event. They invited all their friends, had a big thing about it. Um, one missionary was visiting them and saw this happen and one of the, uh, uh, the uh, former Soviet Union Christians said to this missionary, you know, some of our members have died more than once. <laughs> Funerals are great, I tell you. Invite your friends. Best evangelistic event we do probably all year. There's something beyond. We sense it. So Paul's saying, don't you want this hope? Now, yes, he says, you, you, you know, you're right, you cannot see it. But if you could see it, then it wouldn't be hope. And in fact, if you're a believer and you're wrestling with this hope, doesn't the very groaning that I've just been talking about, doesn't that tell you there's something more to come? Doesn't the first fruits of the Spirit, the first course, tell you that there is a main meal about to arrive? Now, perhaps if you're going to be brutally honest with me, you would say it still sounds like a fairy tale. Uh, groaning feels real. Hope does not. It feels like fantasy. You want to live in the real world. You know, whether it's true or whether it's, whether it's, whether it's a good thing or not, whether it's the thing I want or not, I want to live with reality, and this is just the way it is. But, but, but Paul says, follow his thinking. You're getting confused between hope and sight. Hope by its nature is not something you have already, otherwise it would not be hope. And doesn't the very groaning that you think is so real actually teach you? There must be hope. Otherwise, why the groaning? You know, a robot doesn't groan about only being a robot. But the whole of creation groans, Paul says. And we Christians, we groan too. We groan because we're not where we are hoping to be. We sense there's a thing which has not yet happened for which we are made. And actually, many stories are about that too. The story of our life is about that. There's a wonderful piece of apologetics which is playing along a similar sort of theme done by C.S. Lewis uh, in his book, The Silver Chair. 
And there's a moment when one of his characters called Puddleglum is um, being sort of grilled by a wicked witch trying to be persuaded that actually the world above, Narnia, in this deep underground world, the world above, Narnia, the wicked witch is trying to persuade them, doesn't really exist. It's just make-believe. You know, when they say uh, a sun is like a lamp of a much bigger, you know, the witch says, you're just making it up. When you say, look, the lion, Aslan, is like a cat, but much bigger, much better, she says, you're just making it up. And it's very clever of C.S. Lewis because really that, was, that is exactly a sort of Freudian argument of wish fulfillment. And in this beautiful way that's accessible for children, uh, Lewis answers that question through this character, Puddle Glum. I'm going to read a part of it to you. It's so well done. One word, ma'am. Uh, Pologlam says to the witch, one word. All you've been saying is quite right, I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always liked to know the worst and then put the best face I can on it. In other words, Lewis is making him this ultimate realist. Pologlam goes on. So I won't deny any of what you said, but there's one more thing to be said even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have, says Puddleglum. He carries on. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world, which licks your real world hollow. In other words, no one could make up this message. And deep within us, we sense its truth. And perhaps you say to me, it still seems unreal. Well, listen to what Romans 15 verse 4 says. You don't have to turn to it. I'm going to quote a few Bible passages. Romans 15 verse 4 says this. Through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So let me encourage you through the Scriptures. Psalm 73 verse 24. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. That's the Old Testament, by the way. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Luke 23, verse 43, Jesus with the man next to him, the thief next to him on the cross, the man's dying. Will you accept me in your kingdom? He says to Jesus. Jesus replies, tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Death, then paradise for those who believe in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, Paul says, We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. When we die, we go to be at home with the Lord. Most amazingly, Philippians 1, verse 21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
And then Hebrews 2, verse 15. Jesus died and rose again so that he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. That's where our culture is today. That's where many people are. Fear of death, lifelong bondage. How does Jesus deliver us from that? Well, now we're back in Romans chapter 8. No condemnation through to no separation. And at the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul says, Not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, there is groaning. It's first fruits of the Spirit. We're not made for this. There's a harvest to come. We want to get there. And there is hope. You can't see it. Well, that's why it's called hope. And so we live experientially now with this hope because of that hope to come. Well, you say, what does that mean in the most practical terms? Let me give you three brief resolutions to leave us with uh, and take, for you to take with you this week. Here they are. One. Resolve resolutions, things to resolve, disciplines. Resolve to live freely. Now, I, of course, mean true freedom. And what I mean by that is Christians groan. So it's the mark of being a Christian that you sense you've only had the first course in the heavenly banquet, which is still to come. In other words, be free from pretense. Now, we, we can't wear our heart on our sleeve all the time to everyone. I understand that. But when someone asks you, how are you? And you know, you can you know the person well enough that you know that you can be you know full disclosure and you both have more than a moment to spare. Try this. Try actually telling them how you are. Or when someone in your small group tells you that their children are not perfect after all, try following up with telling them that your children aren't perfect either. It will be such a relief to everyone. Or perhaps you have a question about the Christian faith. Perhaps you go to Hayek's or KM's. Well, KM's, I guess, are away. But you're, or maybe you're an older person have a question about the Christian faith. Don't hide it. Questions are okay. That's how you learn. We have the truth. You have questions, you're just going to find more truth. Ask an older, mature Christian. doesn't have to be a pastor, just someone you respect who's an older Christian. Resolve to live freely, openly groaning. Two, resolve to live forward. Forward with hope. So elsewhere, somewhere else Paul says about this, he says, he's forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead. Now, that's such an important word, particularly for pious Christians who have sensitive consciences about sins they've committed in the past. Perhaps it's a sexual sin. You're still feeling under conviction about it from last week. There does need to be repentance, like we talked about. But there comes a moment when, as Paul says, you just forget it. Forgetting it. Straining towards the head. Live with hope. Don't constantly revisit that past over and over again, that thing that happened to you, that thing that happened in, I don't know, some religious meeting or other, the, uh, the thing that happened when you are a high school student, the, the past, the past, the past. No, forget it. Live for Christ now facing forward. What's next for you? What does Jesus have for you 
next? Resolve to live forward confidently because of hope. And then resolve to live fully. Fully. Often people don't really experience the fullness of the hope because they don't want to experience the fullness of the groaning or perhaps uh, the other way around as well. They both go together. Jonathan Edwards put it like this. He said, resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Now, you cannot live with all your might unless you're ready to face up to the fact that there is a while I do live end point. And you can't live with all your might unless you have hope beyond. Now, surely we know this in Wheaton. What made Jim Elliot so great? Hope. What made Paul so great? For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Hope. That's why he was so alive, you know, this moment doing the, the plenty of church here, that moment preaching there. This is not type A, stressed out of your mind in anxiety. This is free, experiencing the groaning. This is forward, hoping, set towards the hope. And therefore, this is fullness of life. You know where you're going. Yeah, the clock is ticking, the sand is running out, but now you have a purpose. You have a dream that is the true dream. It is... It is true. And so you resolve to live fully, hoping and groaning. For in this hope you were saved. Well, if you are groaning, you are a Christian. And if you're hoping, you will live freely, live forward, and live fully. Let's pray together. Lord, set us free from the past. Set us free from the fear of death that is lifelong bondage so that we can live fully filled with hope right now. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.